0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice.
1: This is the Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Zach Williams read his story, Wood Sorrel House, from the March 21, 2022 issue of the magazine. Williams is a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. He's working on a collection of stories. Now, here's Zach Williams
2: Wood Sorrel House. 1. It was a modest summer rental the kind Rana recalled from girlhood trips to Maine or Vermont or the Finger Lakes, set in a small clearing on a thickly wooded mountainside, peacefully out of sight of roads or neighbors or anything else. Jacob opened all the doors, came back downstairs, and remarked a little sternly that the cottage needed updates. The range wobbled, the mattress caved in the middle, the woolly-plaid sofas were from another era. Still, there was something idyllic about the place. They unpacked into daisy-paper drawers and put their toothbrushes behind the spotted mirror. Max got his very own room. When he woke crying in the night, Rana walked down the hall and took him from the crib, a wooden antique with rattling bars. On the shelves in the den, molted antlers served as bookends. A High and Lowest strip hung in a frame there. I've been coming to this old cottage since I was a little girl, it read. I love the smell of mothballs, the beat-up furniture, the rickety porch. There's no TV, telephone, or internet, but that is what I like best. That week, a hot front rolled up the mountain. They spent an afternoon in the forest by the stream. Wiry insects skated on the eddies near the banks. Woodpeckers sounded overhead. Rana repeated the word to teach it to Max, woodpecker. He could say more and more and was newly walking. When he tripped over a root, she stood him up and brushed away the pine needles. In his firetruck shirt and blue summer shoes, he set off again, dragging Quinn, his cloth doll, by the leg. Climbing back to the house, they saw the snapping turtle for the first time. The light had deepened. But the day was still hot, teeming with flies and gnats. The turtle stopped to watch them from the grass beside the path. It was enormous. Pale mud streaked its shell. Its skin was gnarled. It might be a hundred years old, Rana thought. They did live to ages like that, staggering cartoonish ages. Max turned his shoulders, pouting. Too scary, he said. It was his one conceptual word. What he meant by it was hard to say. The turtle was scary, but so were spinach and nap time. Jacob said, no, it's pretty, look. He set Max down, squatted behind the turtle, curled his fingers under the shell on either side and lifted it into the air. The turtle splayed its legs, twisted its neck, showed its tongue and teeth as if gasping. It must have nested nearby. The next time she saw it was weeks later or months, if months was the right word. In those early years or whatever they were, she grew strangely attached to the turtle. Nights, once Max was down, Rana and Jacob would play Risk, an old set, the boxes split corners held with masking tape, and talk their way along the edges of the hard questions. For example, their car, where was it? There wasn't even a driveway. Had someone dropped them off? From whom had they rented the cottage? For how long? How much time had passed before these questions occurred to them? How much more before the questions grew urgent? Jacob argued that the way to understand the situation was through numbers, facts, records, anything they could observe and set down because that was the way you solved a puzzle. But Rana felt sure that the place didn't follow those rules. She tried to show him what she meant. For instance, his plan to track the moon's progress in his journal. It was, of course, a good idea. If the moon did behave oddly here, that might suggest further lines of inquiry, a chain of discoveries. But think of all the nights when he'd realized with a start that the moon was already up that he'd forgotten the project altogether for who knew how long. He'd pull out all the drawers in search of the spiral notepad, which most of the time he couldn't find, despite looking behind the bookcase and in the cellar and below the kitchen sink and under the sofa, where once, on his belly, an arm extended, he caught his fingers in a mousetrap. On the handful of nights when he did find the notepad, he'd run down the porch steps into the moonlight. He'd stay out for a long time. He'd come back all glum and drop it, still open to his earnest sketches, onto the floor. And, she added, a handful of nights. What if that's not right? What if it's dozens, hundreds? Don't exaggerate, Jacob muttered, lying on the rug, eyes hidden in the crook of his arm. It isn't hundreds. They were supposed to draw a line on the floral wallpaper for each new day, but they'd fight over who had done it, or if anyone had, or whether it had been done twice. A small and impenetrable forest of ballpoint ink had sprung up there. Jacob's beard grew into his mouth. His hair ran past his shoulders. Ronan would push it out of his eyes and offer to cut it, saying he looked uncomfortable. He'd tell her that comfort was a distraction. They had to stay focused. Her own hair she cut with the heavy scissors from the kitchen drawer, old-fashioned, black-handled, like the one she remembered from school. She'd stand in front of the bathroom mirror, a towel around her shoulders. Max's hair somehow didn't seem to need cutting. In fact, it hadn't grown an inch. And his fingernails. Could Jacob remember the last time they'd clipped Max's nails? No, he said. I don't know. Cut them then, if they're long and he went back down the steps to the cellar. He'd been obsessed by the chest freezer there. When and how and by whom was the food replenished? He was determined to sit unblinking in front of it until he got some answer. But he admitted one night, amassing his forces, blue, to threaten her as green in Siam. I don't think, somehow it doesn't. His voice broke, his eyes welled. I think maybe it isn't allowed. She crawled over the board and put her head on his shoulder. It was always summer on the mountain. Mornings, when Max's crying woke her, Rana would see how well he had done by the hue of the light on the pines. She'd walk down the hall, softly past the spare room, which Jacob, with his insomnia, now used, and find Max waiting for her, holding the crib's bars. She'd pick him up, kiss the top of his head, smell his hair, take the pacifier from his mouth, and drop it into the jar on the dresser. Quinn, he'd sing as she carried him back to her bed. Every night they placed the doll on her nightstand, a little ceremony they had together. Good night, Quinn. Good night, Quinn. I'll see you in the morning. It was the only way he could bear to part with the thing. If she let him take it into the crib, he'd play with it for hours and never sleep. So at sunrise, reunited, Max would pull Quinn tightly to his body, then push the doll away to appraise it. Rana spoke for Quinn, chirpily. Good morning, Max. Morning, he repeated. The doll's head slumped to one side. Did you have a good night's sleep? She watched the trees moving. Cool air bled through the screen. All the mornings fanned out together like reflections in facing mirrors. Max, looking at Quinn, would nod and say, Good sleep. For Jacob, the final memory was a pale white morning, sun in his eyes, and a downtown bus approaching. He thought he was coming from the gym. For Rana, it was scrubbing Max's back in their old blue tub. Around those moments, Jacob nursed little mythologies. Maybe he'd missed a sign flashing in the sunlight that morning, or there'd been some code meant for Rana in the galaxy of bubbles on Max's skin. On the floor of the den, legs crossed, eyes closed, Jacob would lead guided meditations, walking slowly down flight after flight of imaginary stairs, focused on breath, hands and feet tingling, trying to wrench the memories loose and uncover behind them something new, no matter how trivial, so long as it lay beyond the horizon of the sun in his eyes. Or the soap. But he worried. What if, under scrutiny, their memories grew unstable, eroding or degrading with the addition of confabulated parts? The final bridge to their old lives might crumble. What if the memory practice made things worse? About this problem, he could speculate endlessly. Occasionally, it terrified him. He'd run his hands over his head, staring into the distance as he spoke. And Rana would listen, feeding Max peas or bouncing him on her shoulders, or lying with him and Quinn on the carpet playing trucks. Giving up the memory practice, Jacob moved on to enumeration, listing between turns at risk each reliable aspect of their new lives, no matter how trivial, hoping to piece together some rough cosmogony of the place. Here he'd begin, there is day. Rana, it was a stupid exercise, she hated it, would reply, and night. Sun, moon, grass, trees, Blue beetles, occasional rain, ferns that withdrew at the touch of a finger, the sign in the yard, Wood Sorrel House, and beyond that, the porch steps and the porch itself, the hall table and the high staircase, the cellar steps and all the dust-covered things at the bottom of them, the fishing pole and the waiting coat, the crutches with the torn yellow padding, a tool chest, a sledgehammer, a gray tarp, a pile of red bricks, and a toy bucket and shovel that Max liked to use in the green plastic sandbox out back, Little Tykes brand, in the shape of a turtle." What about the snapping turtle, Ronald offered once. The night was lush. Moths battered the screens. Jacob collected six blue armies. The snapping turtle? Yeah. The last time she'd seen it was one morning near dawn just after Max had begun to cry in his crib. No light yet on the pines. The turtle had lumbered over the grass, leaving a trail through the dew. It's the only one of its kind we've encountered. It's particular among the wildlife here. The birds and grasshoppers are indistinct. We often hear them without seeing them. They might be a kind of set design, a flourish, but the snapping turtle, it's got some kind of, I don't know how to put it, stature, doesn't it? Or character. It feels realer to me. She rolled the dice. Say more. His tone was keen. She would pleased him. She thought of the time she'd seen it with Max in the birch grove. Scary, he'd whined again. But the turtle had watched them pass, really watched. You can see a mind behind the eyes. It's so old, older than us. It's been here longer. It's experience of this place must run deeper. Too much experience, decades. It's almost cruel. What does it do here with so much time? I don't know. I've got questions about the snapping turtle. When I see it, I feel a sense of something larger. You're right, a wider world. She nodded, drew a breath to continue, then stopped. It was a delicate subject with Jacob, the one aspect of the place he wouldn't talk about. Max would slip and fall on the rocks or in the woods, and she'd race to him, turn him over, hoping to find his skin broken. It never was. Her skin had bronzed and cracked. New wrinkles ran from her eyes. But Max was the same. He never had learned woodpecker. In the notepad, she'd written down everything Max could say. Mama, dada, Quinn, hat, outside, uh uh-oh, dirt, play, nose, waffles. She hadn't let herself work from memory. She'd waited until she heard each word anew. Light, bath, nap, scary. Soon, she'd stopped needing to update the list. Maybe, she said, Max will live as long as the turtle. Jacob was silent. If she didn't look up at him, she'd be able to keep talking. She stared into the risk board's blue compass rose. Or longer. I don't know how to think about it. I'm trying. Maybe he'll be here when the house collapses and the forest dies and the sun explodes. Her eyes were unfocused her throat had gone dry isn't that an incredible thought the snapping turtle jacob muttered you're right where does it go there were rows of old paperbacks on the shelves spines laced with faults they didn't appeal but she'd read and reread them all gone with the wind and the pelican brief and a case of need one day jacob thought to look up wood Sorrel in the dog-eared peterson guide Then he went out, found it growing all through the clearing and into the trees. It looked like clover, three heart-shaped leaflets joined at the stalk. Ronna watched Jacob crane over the book, gray and haggard, a bunch of wood sorrel in his hand, and she thought suddenly of his vigils in the cellar when they were still new here, his vow to solve the riddle of the chicken thighs and mixed berries in the freezer. He snapped the book shut and said, It's edible, Ron. You can cook and eat this stuff. Much later, long after he'd left for good, she'd lie out for hours in the wood soil, half dreaming that the lawn was absorbing her gently. One afternoon, she looked up the hill toward the house, run through with summer light, its doors and windows flung wide, to see Max crawling backward down the staircase inside. She was achy and spare, her sunburned scalp showed. He shouldn't do that, she thought, sitting up and shielding her eyes. But when, halfway down, he pushed off the stairs to stand, she laughed a little mountain climber. There was even a comic aspect to the way he fell, straight back, arms wide, as in an old cartoon. The sound of his head hitting each step carried down the hill. When she opened her eyes, he'd come to rest on his back, stone still by the hall table. What if maybe he's dead, she thought, standing across the lawn. An unhurried breeze stirred the tops of the pines. By the time she'd reached the porch, he was halfway up the stairs again on hands and knees. She sat down in the doorway, drifted off, and woke up in the dark. Two. The first time Jacob went exploring, he returned with rabbit skins, ragged and patched with gore, hanging from his bag. I figure I'll get better at it, he apologized, letting them fall to the porch. That night, Rana put Max to bed by herself. Jacob was too exhausted. And then they talked on the couch in the den, he with his head across her lap. I found a lake, he said. You follow the stream down the mountain to where it levels... Then on a little ways, and then it opens up all at once onto the water. I saw the sun glinting on the surface through the trees and thought I was dreaming or dead. The water's cold and clear. There are fish in it." She whispered, "Fish?" It was somehow astounding. Jacob said he wanted to find the edge, if there was one. If it turned out that Wood Sorrel House was in the real world, then the edge would be a road or a town. It would be the edge of their seclusion. If, instead, the place was something constructed, the edge might be more literal. Such a discovery would be horrifying. But then at least he would be able to map the interior. I wonder, he said, if it's automatically generated somehow. Maybe it's creating itself as I go, like I could walk for the rest of my life and it'd just be different configurations of the same trees, the same hills. But maybe not. Maybe if he walked far enough, he'd find a change in the pattern. Imagine if there were cities, They might be strange to us. The people in them might not be people exactly. There might be anything out there, enough to fill lifetimes. Rana ran her fingers through his hair. I tried to stick Max with a sewing needle today. I wanted to see if I could hurt him, you know? Feeling her voice shake, she bit her cheek. I was scared because what if I could? But I told myself that the way to take care of him sometimes is by hurting him, like an inoculation. Bent over his crib, she'd held the needle above the soft underside of his forearm. But I kept dropping it, she said. I couldn't do it. And I didn't know if it was me or him or the place. I really wanted to do it. I kept trying. Jacob lay with his eyes closed. I climbed the high mountain. Yeah? She wiped her cheeks with her shirt sleeve. I got above the tree line. I could see in every direction. She waited. Nothing but trees. I could see the lake. I could see other mountains, a chain, but it's wilderness. It's all wilderness, miles and miles, no roads, nothing. Could you see us? She asked, the house. Her mind ran over the day Max atop her shoulders, leaning to pull a birch leaf from its stem, his outstretched arm before her. Jacob opened his eyes. Who's accountable for this? Absently, she pressed her thumb to his lips. He kissed it, and she pressed again wanting him to open his mouth for her. She ran her left hand down his chest to his belt and began to pull at the buckle. He seized her wrist and flung it away. There was no alcohol in the house. There was, in the medicine cabinet, ibuprofen and antihistamines. She wondered if she could find something psychoactive in the woods, or poisonous, though if she wanted to die, there were better ways. Sealing beams and rope, kitchen knives... She could slam her head against the wall, even, or drown herself in Jacob's Lake. His trips out grew longer. She'd stay in bed, a pillow wrapped around her head to dampen the sound of Max's crying. She'd sweat and shiver, talking to herself. But sooner or later, she'd have to get up, wash her face, drink from the faucet, brush her teeth, walk down the hall, turn the knob, open the door. He'd be there, in the crib, diaper, sodden, hair matted, eyes dark, She'd stand on the threshold. He'd grab the bars, pull himself up, and raise both arms toward her. Once, Jacob stomped up the porch into the house and pulled Max from his high chair. A storm was coming. He wanted him to see it. Jacob was gaunt and sullen, his beard tied in two long braids. A weird green light fell over the clearing. Black clouds crossed the sky. Max squeezed the air between his fingers and whispered, too scary. And later... After they'd been without Jacob for a long time, it all happened again. Same stony clouds, same cold rain, too scary. She wished she could cut his head open and look inside. Had he retained any memory of the first time? Did Max hold on to scary things, or did they pass through him, the way the rain passed over the mountain? Once the blue sky had returned, the storm seemed impossible. When she asked Max if he remembered his father, he'd only point to something he recognized a cup, a toy, a tree, and name it. On his final return to Woodsorrel House, Jacob carried the snapping turtle, impaled on a spear. Rana stood on the porch, holding Max. You killed it, she called, horrified. He smirked. Nasty fucker tried to bite me. The spear, the serrated hunting knife he'd found in the cellar, lashed to a broomstick, had sliced straight through the turtle's shell and out its padded chest. Upside down, legs splayed and tail limp, it shuddered each time the spear's butt struck the earth. Max watched as Jacob hung the turtle with rope from a tree branch below the house and cleaned it. He worked efficiently. Its eyes were milky, its tongue swollen and foamed with spittle. The ancient skin fell in scraps. The meat was nearly purple. When Jacob had finished, the emptied shell swayed in the breeze. It had a spine, Rana thought in awe. Fried in butter, the meat was gristly and ripe. Go on, Jacob urged. His teeth were filthy. Rana took a bite. She chewed until her throat contracted and saliva pooled. Then she spat into a napkin. Jacob slapped the table with both hands. Max, he said, loud and grinning. This country life does not agree with your poor old mother. Three. The lake was just as Jacob had described it. Glimpsing it through the trees, she wondered for a giddy instant if it held something stranger than water. But then she skirted it, moving under branches and through heavy brush, until she found a rocky outcropping that spread down to the edge. It was perfect. She left before dawn, and now the midday sun baked the rock. She stretched out and fell asleep. No dreams. When she woke, she removed her clothes and stepped into the water. It was frigid, but afloat on her back, drifting out, she felt good. Near sunset, she took from her backpack a can of tuna, a sleeve of crackers, an apple, and a chocolate bar. She ate, then went into the woods to gather branches and leaves and needles. She built a fire on the flat rock and spent the evening feeding it. She told herself scattered stories, watching the sparks on the water. She stayed nine days. Near dawn on the 10th, she crashed up through the woods in a panic. It was still dark in the trees. She fell, rolled, and struck a rock. She couldn't breathe. She thought she'd broken a rib. Even as the sky brightened, the space before her was hard to parse. Colors and shapes in the darkness, the woods all the same. She'd have to go back to the lake and start again. But she couldn't find the lake. The sun rose higher, she was thirsty. She wondered if this was what had happened to Jacob. Then she saw the water through the trees. She traced her way back to the outcropping where the embers of her fire still smoldered. And then out the way, she knew she'd come. And when she found the stream, she followed up the mountain. Max sat in the corner of his crib. The room was humid and dim. Everything he'd had, pacifiers, blanket, the green water cup, he'd thrown onto the floor. Except Quinn. He held the doll close. It was mangled and wet. He must have been gnawing at it. His breathing was slow. Max, she said. Then she shouted it, grabbing his shoulders. He said, Too scary. Well... How had it been for the snapping turtle? It had slept in the high grass. In hot weather, it had sat in the stream. It had made its crooked way back and forth across the mountain. The turtle could not think. Presumably, it had been barely aware. But it had lived so long. And what sorts of understanding might be gained in 50 thoughtless years, or 80, or 100? Couldn't the turtle have gathered some intelligence beyond itself? An intelligence in parallel, or in secret, a remote space, if not in its brain then somewhere else, a hidden compartment in which to hold the character of its experience, bright nights and dark ones, soaking rains, the taste of chewed grass. What kinds of awareness might the turtle have accumulated in 150 years? What if it could have lived for a 1,000? How long before it couldn't rightly be called a turtle? Her clothes hung loose then fell apart The words in the paperbacks grew blurrier until she could read them only if she bent close with the shade off the lamp. New light bulbs were always in the closet by the stairs. Bars of soap, too, and extra sheets, talcum powder, needles, and thread. She'd mended Quinn so many times that it wasn't really Quinn anymore. The doll's face had worn away. Its clothes were gone. The only things that changed in her life were dreams, so she paid more and more attention to them. She came to feel that all the dreams she'd ever had were connected, as if part of one vast landscape, and with practice she could traverse it, discovering dreams she'd never remembered before. I could drop him into the lake, she thought one morning, as she saw by the light on the pines that he'd woken too early. But suppose he climbed out. I could try to do to him what Jacob did to the turtle, eyes, tongue, brain, and bones all scattered, but I can't, she thought, I can't, I can't. He sat, holding Quinn, a pacifier in his mouth, in the crib. She fell down beside it, reached through the bars, put her hand on his head. Hi, Max, she said. She was shaking, covered in sweat. Did you have a good sleep? Max took the pacifier from his mouth and said, sleep. Four. Something flew up the stairs toward her, struck her hands as she guarded her face. A blue jay had flown in through the open door. She twisted and fell down the steps, then lay whimpering by the long hall table. Her ankle burned and was discolored. It wouldn't take any weight. She crawled into the den, pulled herself onto the couch, and shivered under the quilt, listening to the bird flit against the rafters. Upstairs, Max woke from his nap and began to cry. In the morning, she lowered herself down the cellar steps, seated, her left leg outstretched. The crutches stood in the corner, and then she found the backpack, filled it with food, took a lighter and a knife and the waiting coat from its hook. The steps were too steep to climb, so she went out the storm doors into the clearing. She stood looking up at Max's window. Clouds stung her eyes. She rested that day and the next by the stream, and then she set off down the mountain, on one crutch, in little hops, her left hand tacky from saplings and branches. At the lake, she slept through a run of days, sun on her face, and at night she watched fish break the water's surface. Mornings, when it was cool, she gathered stones from the shoreline, piling the flattest and heaviest into cairns. How deep was the lake? Was it possible she'd sink past the edge into some other world? Yes, that was possible. There was just no help for it, any of it. It wasn't as if she could leave him a note, or one last meal to eat, or teach him to dress himself or use the toilet. The problem was too big. She had no power over it. She unbuilt the cairns stone by stone, pushing each one into the pockets of the waiting coat. But more days passed, and slowly her mind started to change. Because here's what she could have done. She could have taken him out of the crib. As things stood, it was only if the legs rotted and it crashed to the floor or the house burned down or blew over or fell apart that he'd ever be free from it. A hundred years, a thousand longer, she didn't know. However, this thing worked. She went into the brush for more wood. Night came, and she stared into the fire. For the sake of argument, say she went back. She'd take him out of the crib and put him on the floor. Then what? She'd have to turn and run. He'd try to follow. Impossible. She couldn't. And in the crib, at least, he'd be safe. But from what? She threw twigs into the flames. Well, safe from scary things. Because left alone, Max would fall down the stairs again. He might tumble down the mountain, crash through branches and over rocks, One scary thing after another, on and on, into infinity, a kind of hell. What if, somehow, he followed her into the lake, and a current swept him to the bottom and pinned him against her as she rotted? It was possible. She had to concede that. In the crib, nothing would happen. Nothing at all. And that could be holy, in a way. He'd be like a monk, almost. A sort of saint, enshrined, enthroned, inhabiting eternity. She surprised herself by crashing into the water, not in some solemn moment after a speech or a prayer, but on impulse. Exhilarated by the cold, she kicked until her toes hit nothing, the stones pulling her, water throbbing in her ears. There was a hum or a hiss she could hear only once she'd gone under, an aquatic vibration, and then a shock at realizing that this was going to work. But she must have fought despite herself. It was hard to remember. She found herself back on the outcropping, belly down, legs still in the water. All the way home to the cottage, she felt calm and strange, separated from things by a layer of noise. Max lay asleep in the crib. She kissed his brow. He stirred to life. She rocked him, seated on the edge of the toilet, as a hot bath ran. She washed him clean while he sang to Quinn, and his wet skin glowed. He asked her to give Quinn a kiss. She did it. Then she touched Max's nose, held his body, felt it swell with breath. She fell into the tub and dug at him with her fingers, pressed her face into his neck, gasping to take in the smell of his head. Five. She fixed him to her back in a swaddle of cut bedsheets and wore the backpack on her front. Quinn, she stuffed down beside him. The straps chafed, and Max squirmed and kicked. Sometimes he cried, but mostly as they traveled, he spoke softly to the doll. In the afternoon, they passed the lake, a victory, Of course, there was only more forest, all the same. She built a fire beneath an overhanging rock. She ate jerky and apologized to Max for not feeding him. He pouted but then wandered off, picking up sticks and digging with them in the earth. The sun set. They sang to Quinn, I'll see you in the morning. In the night, she woke and felt Max breathing against her. They followed the sun, so she called it west. Sometimes the hills they climbed would level and drop limply back down. Other times they'd break through the tree line to bare rocky stretches where eagles skimmed overhead. They traveled along a mountain ridge, two beautiful days, but had to double back when they came to a high chasm. No way down. That afternoon they saw black bears, three of them, nosing along the mountainside. She shifted Max so he could see and said, Bears. She stewed and ate nettles. She kicked mushrooms from tree trunks and roasted them. When Max put both hands into the fire, she panicked and started to shout, then stopped and let him. The trees thinned. No more big pines, only firs, growing shorter and sparser until it happened so gradually she barely noticed they were out of the forest. The soil turned sandy and pale. Before them was nothing, nothing whatsoever. Now and then she'd look back, the forest edge like a wall and the mountains looming over it, clouds and sky above the peaks, Altogether, like something in a fishbowl. She walked until it was only a green-blue smear and then nothing, and then they were nowhere. On her back, Max was quiet and still. The sand was soft and felt nice on her feet. It faded to a dirty white like smudged paper, and so did the horizon. When the lack of perspective made her dizzy, she walked with her eyes shut. They had no fires, she ran out of water. Sometimes Max whispered things in her ear, Then the last trace of gray was gone from the sand. It was fine and synthetic feeling. When displaced, it whirled in the air with unnatural lightness. The sky darkened and the air grew thinner. It tasted like plastic. Then the only light was behind her, as if she were walking into a cave. And soon they were in total darkness. Okay, she thought. What now? She sat down, slipped the backpack straps over her arms, and found the lighter. Briefly, it lit the space around them. She pulled Max from her back, curled up with him, and fell asleep. When she woke, he was gone. She felt for the lighter and couldn't find it. The darkness jumped before her eyes. But then she calmed herself. He couldn't have gone far. She angled her head to listen, in one direction, then another. And on hands and knees, she found the place where the sand went smooth again. In rigid, deliberate movements, she crawled out, feeling with her fingers, counting each motion away from her backpack and then returning wider each time, a spiral. Finally, she found a divot in the sand ahead of her, and then another. She followed the indentations out, slow and careful, the blood loud in her ears. Her fingertips found Max's cloth diaper, and then his back, his shoulders, the nape of his neck. She went into a crouch and drew her arms around him. Only later did it terrify her. He'd been sitting perfectly still, staring into the dark, Back out in the light, it was the first thing she noticed. Max, where's Quinn? She dug through the pack. Quinn, he said. She looked toward the dark, then at him, and fell into wild sobs. Six. First, she knocked out the walls with the sledgehammer from the cellar. Then she dismantled the rooms upstairs from the inside out chopped up the plaid sofas, the crib, the bookshelves, and the staircase, board by board. No more stairs, only ramps, built from repurposed wood. The house was transformed into something like a dais, with a wide, flat surface. She doesn't feed him. She leaves him for days in the woods. She has a cage on a rope, like a crab trap. She leads him to the lake and submerges him inside it. Too scary, he says, once he's coughed up all the water. She shakes his face and tells him that it's not. One day, she imagines, she'll unlatch the top and pull him out, cold water pouring from the bottom, and he'll say nothing at all. He'll be quiet and strong. He'll have kept something from before. She believes this not only because she has to, but because he started talking about Quinn. He looks out over the treetops and tells her, Quinn is in the dark. In his head must be a picture of the scene, a story he tells himself. And so it stands to reason that he may in some way remember what he's been taught. Maybe he'll remember her. There's a place in the yard where she buries her teeth when they fall out. Six little funerals so far. She brings him to watch. Maybe she'll feel it coming and notice Link away. But even if she dies there on the ground, the time before she's gone to soil will be to him like nothing. She'll eat less and less, lie on her mat, boil wood sorrel with salt. He'll walk up the ramps, sleep in the grass, play in the bleached old turtle shell. The sun will rise early and set late. There will be beautiful days.
1: That was Zach Williams reading his story, Wood Sorrel House. This is his first published story. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Gish Jen reads Friends by Grace Paley. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.